0: All right, Psalm 52 this evening, as we pick back up in our study through the book of Psalms together, these next few Psalms in front of us are some shorter Psalms. We get again some Psalms of David. We're told at the beginning of Psalm 52 here that this Psalm was to be delivered to the chief musician and that it was, it says, notice a contemplation of David when Doeg the Edomite went to Saul and told him, saying, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. Uh, so this kind of tells us the backdrop. Uh, we don't always get the backdrop or the context of some of these psalms. But on occasion, we do get excuse me, some indication like this. So the setting of this psalm has to do something with the events that happened in 1 Samuel 21. In 1 Samuel 22, if you want to read that section at some point, just for sake of remembrance, it was during that time when, remember, David was on the run and David went to the house of Himelech, the priest, and was seeking to get some supplies for some of his men. Uh, and they recognized that uh, this seemed odd that a high-ranking official uh, would just show up unexpectedly like that. Again, remember, at that time, David was serving prior to when Saul's Envy kind of pushed him out of the the palace life there when he was serving as one in Saul's household. Uh, So as David shows up, they inquired, you know, what are you here for? And and unfortunately, David wasn't very honest. Uh, Though he was on the run from Saul, he said, I'm here on the king's official business. He sent me on an errand, and can you give me some supplies for, for some of my men? And David wasn't very forthright and honest in regards to what was going on at that time. And they complied. They gave him some supplies. But there was a man there, Doeg the Edomite, we're told who recognized that David was there. He knew at this time David was a fugitive and was kind of living uh, on the run. Saul's hatred was having David get chased down through the wilderness, wanting to put him in death. And later on, not too long afterwards, uh, we're told that Saul's beginning to, best word I can use, describe wine to the people, that no one was helping him out to find David. David. And it's at this point that Doeg the Edomite, this man sort of raises his hand and indicates that he had seen David there with Ahimelech uh, and that he had helped him out. And at this point, Saul is enraged. He's very angry, uh, and he proposes the idea that someone should go and punish uh, not only Ahimelech, but all of the priests because of their guilt in complying with helping David and being supportive of David. Now, the sad thing is they were completely naive to what David was even doing. And because of David's dishonesty, this man, Doeg the Edomite, goes back as an instrument of Saul, and he actually puts to death, we're told, murders innocent, untrained men in cold blood, over 80 of the servants of the Lord there, and puts them to death because they feel like that he was somehow uh, complying and they were helping and assisting David at this time. And it's somewhat to do with the time of this setting that this psalm is recorded because David, of course, was able to escape, but David felt horribly miserable after this because he realized his failure, to be honest, had really put in a vulnerable situation all of those servants of the Lord who were killed in cold blood because of what Doeg uh, went back and did with Saul's aggression and authority behind him. But David was able to kind of escape. And somewhere in light of these things, David pens this psalm. And he says in the midst of it, Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. He says, Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, working deceitfully you love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. God, he says, verse five, shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take away, take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living. So David here seems to be speaking in some ways In regards to some of the things that Doeg was guilty of, his words that were very harsh and hurtful, his actions that were extremely evil. And in verse 5, of course, he's referencing how God would render judgment to him for the very thing that he did in putting to death all of those servants of the Lord. It's interesting as David's kind of describing these things here in verse 1, he's kind of describing just the the strong sense of kind of arrogance and the aggression and evil, he says, why do you boast, O mighty man? Uh, Now, Doeg didn't seem to be someone necessarily who was a mighty man, so it almost could kind of be a play on words there that, that David's kind of almost perhaps maybe indicating in the idea of, wow, what a mighty man you are, that you would go and you would murder in cold blood 80 plus servants of the Lord, who were defenseless, who were untrained, who had no weapons and who were innocent people. And yet you go in the midst of that group and you put to death all of those people. Oh, what a mighty man you are. How brave you are to be able to go do something like that. How strong and, and evil. you And again, I look at that and to some ways, it reminds me of sadly what we see when people do some of the horrific things they do in our culture today. Where someone that's, evil in their heart intention with a weapon can go into an innocent crowd or an innocent school and they begin to put to death and hurt and harm untrained unarmed innocent civilian people who've done absolutely nothing to them and yet sadly the thing that disgusts me even more is then we, we give them what they want anyway we put their name all over media and we put their people like that to me should get no recognition at all they're complete cowards. That's a complete coward. Someone who, with an evil intention, not knowing proper stewardship of a weapon, can go and use it in an evil, horrific way against innocent, unarmed, untrained people and put them to death in uh, almost kind of the same way that Doeg just goes in and unleashes just this wicked wrath. And can almost sense, maybe David, perhaps in some ways, is saying, oh, what a mighty man you are. What a mighty man you are to be able to go and do that, kind of almost sarcastically saying that uh, in sarcasm towards him because of what he had done. Now, what's interesting is that David says as well there in verse 1, in the midst of this, and again, think about the scenario that has happened. David says, yet despite all of this horror and what took place, he says, verse 1, but yet the goodness of God endures continually. David was somehow able to step back and see that despite the evil that happens in the world from time to time, and it does, nothing new under the sun, that David understood despite how bad mankind can be and how evil people can behave, thankfully the goodness of God is the stabilizing influence that we can always still rely upon. That God remains good and God can never be corrupted and that we can rejoice in that. And that somehow, even in amazing ways, we see this throughout the Old Testament multiple times. Joseph makes reference of it when all the evil, horrible things happened to him, remember, by his family members and different people who did him wrong. At the end of his life there in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph says, what you intended for evil. God turned around and and used it for good to bring about his purposes. And God just has a marvelous way because of his goodness that despite how evil and wicked men can be, that God can take some of those evil, horrific things that people do to us and to other people and god can turn them around and his goodness can can be continually at work in our life the goodness of god it endures continually despite the wickedness of men thank goodness we have that assurance that we can rest upon he describes in verse two again the the strength and the hurtfulness even of words and again remember doeg's words were what led to all these murderous things that came about he's describing maybe in some ways some of uh, the, the words and the hurtfulness of them, he says in verse two, your tongue devises destruction. And boy, is that not true? Whether it is a war or things that happen or things that get promoted right through anti-terrorist you know, type group, these kind of, it, it's the tongue that devises destruction it's propaganda, it's things that people say, again, these different groups, Antifa and so forth, it, it's the things that are being said and the tongue devises these destructive things that happen. It's the words of men. I mean, look through human history and, and look at some of the most horrific things that have happened and has it not been the words of men and things that people say that convince people to do the most horrific things in culture? And he says here of Doeg, he says, your tongue devises destruction. And then he describes it in a very picturesque way. He says, like a sharp razor. You ever had somebody's tongue be like a sharp razor? It cuts, right? You can, those are very cutting words. And somebody's tongue can be like a sharp razor. I mean, literally just wound and cut someone and, and cause tremendous hurt and damage, working deceitfully. He says, you love evil more than good. And sadly, some people... You love evil and they love evil more than they love good. He says they love lying rather than speaking righteousness. I was very tempted to just write my Bible there. The media. You love lying more than righteousness. Wasn't the whole purpose of media to report facts to tell us the truth. <laughs> that is the that is the the underlying purpose of media and yet it seems that the media loves promoting falsehood and false narratives and twisting stories and pushing agendas more than they love just reporting what's right. Just give us the facts. Just tell us the truth. But yet, sadly, the corruptness of humanity in people's hearts, there are those who truly, truly, notice, not just they're evil, they love evil. They love evil more than they love good. And they love lying in some way. They enjoy lying rather than speaking righteousness. He says, you love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. And notice David takes rest in this. He says, but God will deal with you. David says, I don't need to deal with you. I don't need to render judgment. David often would let God deal with judging and dealing with those who did wrong. He says, God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away, pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you. From the land of the living. Now, that's pretty strong language there, isn't it? When you look at what David's saying there, God will destroy you, take you away, pluck you out, and uproot you from the land of the living. And he says, Selah, or think upon that. What I think upon is, I think, wow. In other words, God is pretty strongly displeased with what he describes there in verses 2, 3, and 4. That those who do those things, God doesn't just wink an eye at it. God is very strongly displeased with those who use words in hurtful and destructive ways and devise evil in such a way where David believed that God would strongly judge those who were doing such things. He says, verse 6, the righteous also shall see and fear. The idea is fear in the sense of be in awe and wonder, not fear as far as terror. And shall laugh at him saying, here is the man who did not make God his strength, this was the error, who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. So here he identifies the person who was doing what was wrong, and he says it's a man who does not make God his strength. That is, it's the person who doesn't rely upon the Lord to be his strength and his support, but instead, look what he does, instead of relying upon the Lord he says this individual, they trust in the abundance of his riches. The idea is their money is their God. Their, their larger amount of wealth becomes the thing that they rely upon for their support system. They don't pray, they pay. That's the idea there. And when you have the resources, you can do that. Some people can. And they actually can rely on the abundance of their riches. There are those and whole systems that are in operation in our culture and in our world that, that this, the driving engine behind them is tons of wealth. And because there is tons of wealth and they are trusting in that wealth and the donors and the financing behind all that, as they trust in the abundance of those riches, they're able to actually, kind of a, almost a sad but sick statement, they're able to strengthen themselves in their own wickedness because they're able to finance that wickedness and keep it carrying forward rather than trusting in the Lord. Now, David says, in contrast of his own life, he says, but I, the idea is in in contrast, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust, David says, in the mercy of God forever and ever. So David says, this is what they may be doing out in the world. But he says, I don't want to be conformed to the patterns of the world. And I don't want to operate the way that the world does. He says, "The way that I've learned to operate and be fruitful he refers to himself like a green olive tree is he says is just to plant myself in the house of God and he pictures himself just as someone who's rooted in the house of God, the place where God's word is taught, where the ways of God are explained, and people are taught to depend upon the Lord and rely upon him for strength, and he says, This is who I am and what I want to be like he says God is my strength. And he says, I want to be like a flourishing green olive tree in the house of God. Just like a plant that's thriving and flourishing because it's green and full of life. He says, because I'm trusting in the mercy of God forever and ever. And, you know, I love that picture of someone who's experiencing a fruitful life because they are, verse 8, in the house of God because they're planted in the house of God. You know, this reminds me all the way back to remember Psalm one, the very first Psalm that we looked at together uh, there in Psalm one, there's that similar language. It says Psalm one blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. That is, they don't listen to ungodly counselors. Be aware of that. People want to give you counsel, but is it godly counsel? He says, blessed is the person who doesn't listen to the counsel of the ungodly nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight, the one who's going to be blessed, happy, fulfilled, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. So again, do we want to experience a thriving Fruitful life? Do you want to experience the good fruit like a plant blossoming? He says that boils down to really some simple things. Just get rooted into the Lord, just be rooted in the house of God. Plant yourself in the house of God where you can hear the word of God and experience the ministry of the spirit of God. And he says, and you'll find that your life will be flourishing like a green olive tree producing fruit. David says, verse nine, and I will praise you forever. And boy, that's hard to do when you're going through difficult times. And this was a difficult time in David's life. I mean, he felt horrible about what happened to all the servants of the Lord. He knew he had made some mistakes himself, but yet David, rather than wallowing in self-pity and condemnation, he says, you know, I can always celebrate the goodness of God, which he said back in the early part of the psalm, the goodness of God continues forever. So he says, Lord, I will praise you forever because you have done it. And in the presence of your saints, the idea is together with the people of God, that's where encouragement comes from. I will wait on your name for it is good. So David says, Lord, I will praise you because you have done it. Lord, you did this. Because of what you've done, I will praise you. And, you know, perhaps right now there's reason in your life to praise the Lord because of something that he's done. You know, there are times in our lives when we know, just like David knew that he had escaped because the intervention of God, it was a work of God that he survived and he wasn't caught again and put to death. And he said, Lord, you did that. If it wasn't for you doing what you did, things would have gone a completely different way. And look, when we realize that God has done something, the proper response to that is worship. Lord, I praise you. Lord, you did this. You've done it. Lord, the thing I prayed for, the thing I, I needed you to do, Lord, you have done it. And so therefore, Lord, I praise you. I offer you the sacrifice of praise as a way of gratitude for what God has done. Perhaps God has done something in your life recently My encouragement is use it as an opportunity to give him the praise that he deserves. Psalm 53, David then says here to the chief musician set to Mahalath, a contemplation of David. And David begins verse one by saying the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good now. Take notice here what David says. He says the fool, the idea is the foolish man, the foolish person. And understand when he uses that term here, the fool or the foolish person, he's not talking about intellectual foolishness. He's not talking the idea of, oh, that person's a fool in the sense that they they, they lack intelligence. What he's talking about is not an intellectual problem, but he's talking about a moral problem. A person who's a fool, not because they lack intelligence, but a person who God says is a fool because they lack moral rightness within their heart. Because you notice what he says there. He says the fool has said what in his heart. See, it's not a head issue. It's a heart issue because you can have people who are incredibly intelligent. And yet in their heart, they reject God, right? A person doesn't ultimately come to know God by their head. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with, you know, having a good grasp on theology and understanding things. But when you read the word of God, the Bible says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raises Jesus from the dead, that you'll be saved. Salvation is a heart issue. It's not a head issue. Because quite honestly, our heads can get our hearts in trouble. You know, it's often said before, the longest distance is the 18 inches from our head into our heart. And we can believe all the right things in our head. We can mentally assent to things and you can know facts and information in your head. There are lots of people who know a lot about God or about Jesus and things even from the Bible in their heads. They know information in their head, but nothing's ever happened in their heart or even though they know that information, they reject God in their heart. Because though they know it, you know, factual in their head, in their heart, the epicenter of our being, which is our heart, where the seat of our desires are and our will is, in our heart, we say, I don't want to believe that. And this is the idea here where he says, the fool, the one who is a fool, has said within his heart, there is no God. The idea is not only a you know an atheist but but the idea of almost is a practical atheist is that they're saying and the language literally you notice that it's in italics the two words there is and that's proper because in the original hebrew it's really just no god or the idea there's is, is the person saying in their heart no to god they don't want to embrace the existence of god they're saying no to God. They don't want to acknowledge that God is alive or real because why? Then they have to live in accountability. Then they have to answer to God. So though they may be very intelligent in their heart, they're morally corrupt. And so therefore in their heart, they say no to God. They refuse to acknowledge God. They refuse to acknowledge the existence of God or the authority of God because they don't want to answer to God because they love darkness and they want to continue in their sin and their selfish way of living and the bible says that when someone is saying no to god in their heart refusing god or refusing to acknowledge god god says that is a very foolish thing to do it's a very foolish thing to do it's a hard issue though so he says the, the fool says this in their heart it's a moral problem they say no to god they reject god and why because he says verse one because they are corrupt And have done abominable iniquity, and they're not doing good. So again, because they're living a corrupt life, they want to keep living a corrupt life, right? They don't want to answer to God. They don't want to change their ways or have to turn from their sin. And so they say no to God because they want to continue in their corruption and continue to do the things that are sinful, that are considered abominable iniquity and keep living in that way. And again, here you see this same connection. We mentioned this on Sunday morning in our study. Here's this picture again of belief being connected to behavior. Because because the fool says in his heart, no God or no to God, as the result, notice how the atheist, the one who rejects God behaves. They behave in a way that's corrupt. They do abominable iniquity and they don't do any good. So because they refuse to believe God in their heart, their heart then allows them to continue to be the God of their own life, and therefore they practice the evil that they want to practice, the very evil that their heart desires to do. So again, if you don't believe properly towards God, you're not gonna behave properly towards God. And so this is the idea here. Jesus said that by our fruit, we would be known. And because they're doing such things, they're indicating that they're simply saying no to God. Why does that person live that day? What's wrong with them? I can't believe they will live that way. Look, the root of the issue is that they're simply rejecting God. That's where we need to pray for them. God, help them to stop saying no to you. They're rejecting you in their heart. And because they're doing that, that's why they're behaving in the corrupt ways that they are they're living in darkness now verse two and three he begins to describe how all of humanity has this same initial condition we're depraved we're sinful from birth notice he says verse two god looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any that is on the earth among humanity who understand the ideas who automatically understand the things about god to see if there are any on the earth who are automatically seeking God. That is seeking God from birth. What's the answer? Verse 3. Every one of them has turned aside. The Bible says we all like sheep have gone astray. Every person has turned aside from God. They've together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. So verse 2 and 3 simply speak of what we call the depravity of mankind that is that the bible teaches that we are inherently sinful from birth that adam disobeyed god god had said to him in the day that you eat of that tree you shall surely die and certainly physical death entered into the human race when adam our federal head did that initially as the first human being from which we've all descended from but not just physical death entered the world that time but spiritual death happened because as soon as adam disobeyed god he went from walking in fellowship with god right the next thing you know he's hiding from god and now he's sewing together fig leaves and he's trying to cover his shame because he has a sense of guilt and he's hiding from god he's not in relationship with god anymore he had lost connection he had died internally spiritually and so adam can only pass on to mankind what he possessed which was physical life which was temporary because he's now a mortal being so we all experience physical death and he could not pass on spiritual life because inherently he lost it in the garden And so every one of us is not born connected to God. We're not born in right relationship with God. The Bible says that we are born under sin, that we're inherently sinful. Again, this is God's assessment of us. And despite what our assessment is of ourselves, if we want to make ourselves feel good, it's much wiser to take God's assessment than your own. God's assessment is way more accurate than your own assessment of yourself. And God's assessment all throughout the word of God, here it is again, verse two, God looks down from heaven upon the children of men. What is God's assessment? To see if there are any who understand that as they understand the ways of God from birth, they, they seek God right away automatically. God's assessment, everyone, we're all included in that, everyone has turned aside They've together become corrupt. That is, as we live, we just practice the very sin that we are prone to as sinful people. He says, there is none who does good. The idea is to meet the standard of of heavenly perfection. We all fall short of the glory of God. He says, no, not one. And it's Paul in Romans chapter three that quotes these very verses to point to this reality that we are all sinful. In Romans three, Paul speaks about there how we are all under sin as it is written, and then he quotes these verses together with others about how we've all turned aside, together become corrupt, none doing good. And then he says this towards the end of that section. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, listen, that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become guilty before God. We're all guilty. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin, he says. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference for, here it is again, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, David understood the depravity of the human soul. And the reason that we need to understand that is until we come to terms with the reality of the depravity of our own soul and that we are sinful and guilty before a holy God, you don't look for a savior if you don't think you need to be saved. So the first thing is recognizing, yes, you know what? What God's word says is true. I am a sinful, corrupt person before a holy and a righteous God, my creator who is real and who one day I will stand before. And therefore, that is why I must be saved from my sins. That is why Jesus had to die on the cross for my sins and why I must call on the name of the Lord to save me. And the Bible speaks of how Jesus gives us a righteous standing by giving to us his righteousness when we trust in him. He takes away our sinfulness, but not only does that, he also then gives to us his righteousness so that we can stand before God. Because Paul himself, who wrote those very things, understood. Paul says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Nothing. You know, Paul said, I tried turning over a new leaf. It was worse on the other side. And it's such a valuable thing for humility and proper recognition to realize our own corrupt, depraved condition. And David here describes this very reality. And he says, some come to terms with it and they humble themselves before God. And as a guilty sinner, they cry out to God and say, Father, forgive me. Thank you that Jesus died on the cross for me. Jesus Cleanse me of my sin. You died and took my punishment. Forgive me. I call upon your name, Lord. Save me. Give me a righteous standing. I'm corrupt and guilty. And others say, nope. Nope. I want to keep living the way I want to live so I'm not acknowledging the existence of God. I'm not acknowledging the reality of what God says. I will make my own terms. Well, that's a real bad idea. And David says here, it's the fool who says no to God. And that's a path of further corruption when you begin to reject God in your heart. He says, verse four, have the workers of iniquity no knowledge. The idea, don't they recognize it? Who eat up my people as if they eat bread and, and look, do not call upon God. There they are in great fear where no fear was. For God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. You have put them to shame, because God has despised them. Notice he describes some of the symptomatic effects of the foolish person who rejects God. You see what he says there in verse five? He says, they they live in great fear where no fear was. The idea is a description. They're struggling with anxiety, paranoia. He says, they're in great fear and there's nothing even to be afraid of. That is, they're experiencing fears and paranoia and anxiety in their head. Why? Because they're not in right relationship with God, and that causes all types of crazy symptomatic effects in the soul of a person. When a person is not in right relationship with God, and they're not experiencing the peace of God and the love of God, the Bible says there is no fear in love that perfect love casts out fear. That God hasn't given to us a spirit of fear. God gives us a spirit of, the Bible says, of power, of love, and of a sound mind. And one of the greatest blessings of being in right relationship with God, right, is, is having peace, man. <laughs> Actually having peace in your soul. And having mental stability and knowing that, that I have a father who's going to take care of me. So I don't have to be paranoid about everything. I don't need to go into fits of, of having anxiety attacks and, and, and feeling like everything's falling apart. And sometimes most of those things, they're, they're just unjustified fears. And people get overtaken mentally and emotionally, right, by anxiety and just this grips people and causes all types of symptomatic effects mentally and emotionally. And he says, this is one of the things that happens. David says right here, they're in great fear and there's not even anything to be afraid of. They're dealing with that anxiety from disconnection from God. He says, verse six, oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. That's ultimately where the Messiah would come. The salvation of Israel was a a term referring to the Messiah, the Savior. David's longing for the Savior to come. When God brings back, he says, the captivity of his people, then let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Psalm 54 gives us another backdrop once again. It says that this Psalm, Psalm 54, was when the Ziphites went and said to Saul, Is David not hiding with us? So this backdrop comes to us somewhere around 1 Samuel 22 and 1 Samuel 23, where David saw that the people were being attacked by the Philistines, and he asked the Lord as he prayed, Lord, should we go and help them? And understand, for David to go and help anybody at a time when he was on the run in the wilderness and trying to just stay alive, to his men, that sounded like insanity, right? I mean, David and his men were doing everything they could, living in caves and just eluding the pursuits of Saul. And David asked the Lord, do you want us to help this particular group that's being attacked by the you know, Philistine people? And the Lord says, yes, David, go and help him. And David, when he tells his men, his men were even not real supportive. They said, David, don't you realize we're doing everything we can to stay alive, and you want to go do more? We're just barely getting by, and you want to take on new wars and enter into new battles, and we, we need help ourselves, and you want to go help more people? You want to stretch and you know expand our borders even more? And this just seemed shocking to them. But David obeyed the Lord and the Lord helped and great victory came about. And David assisted and brought deliverance for them. And you would think they'd be incredibly grateful, right? And then David ultimately says, as he's hiding in the area of the wilderness of Ziph. He says, Lord, are they going to tell Saul where I'm at? And no doubt he's thinking there's no way, not after what I did for him. Lord, after what I did for them, they would never turn their backs on me. I mean, I risked my neck for them. I helped them. I, I I poured my life into them. Lord, they they would never betray me after what I did for them. But but I'm just checking, Lord, because I I, I trust you more than anybody else. Are they going to rat out where I'm at, my position here? And the Lord says, actually, they are. <laughs> they, they, they're going to betray you, David. They're they're going to betray you and and, and they're going to turn you over for their own advantage. And and they're going to be fickle. And sometimes people are fickle, right? Those that we think would never be fickle and turn against us and hurt us, maybe even after all you've done for them. But it's part of what happens in life. Look, I always have to encourage my heart when times like that happen to realize how many times are we fickle with the Lord? How many times does the Lord do such wonderful things for us and then we're kind of fickle with him and we turn our back on him? But this happens, and this was a time when kind of David went through a betrayal a hurtful betrayal in his life. And this is where this stems from, as he, again, was almost taken down because of the betrayal of some of those who he had helped out. So David cries out to the Lord, right? He's in a situation where he realizes now he's in jeopardy. They gave away his position to Saul. So he says, save me, O God, by your name and vindicate me by your strength. So he says, Lord, uh, I'm not going to be able to get myself out of this precarious situation. So he's saying, Lord, if you don't save me, if you don't intervene in this situation, uh, I'm going to be be sunk. And, you know, sometimes we we kind of find ourselves in in that place. And this was really kind of the place where David was. David was in a spot where he was pinned into a situation where he was really at great risk and he really needed the lord to provide an intervention to save and to deliver him in fact you know hold your hand here turn back with me to first samuel 23 i'll show you exactly what david uh, since we're kind of referencing this exactly kind of what david was dealing with at this time first samuel 23 turn back a few books And toward the end of the chapter, because it's kind of a beautiful ending to this deliverance, because you'll see how God answered David's prayer and why David was praying, Lord, please save me. You got to intervene here. First Samuel 23. uh, It tells us, look with me around uh, verse 23. See therefore and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides. Now this is Saul telling his men, "Go, go search him out chase him down, look all the lurking places in the caves where he hides. This is kind of like the devil does with us. He comes searching us out, trying to find us, to bring us down. And then he says, come back to me with certainty and I will go with you. And it shall be if he's in the land that I will search for him throughout all the clans of Judah. So they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. But David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the plain of the south of Jeshimon. And when Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, therefore, he went down to the rock and he stayed in the wilderness of Maon. So David's on the move. He's just a step ahead of Saul, just trying to keep his men safe. And when Saul heard, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. And now look, here's between what we call, we use the term statement between a rock and a hard place, right? This is exactly what's gonna happen. Verse 26, then Saul went on one side of the mountain And David and his men were on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul for Saul sent his men and they were encircling David and his men to take them. But a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry, come for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore, Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines so they called that place the rock of escape. So here's David. He's on one side of the mountain. The Lord says this, on the other side of the mountain of Saul and his men. And literally at the last moment, at the last moment, God supernaturally sends this messenger. It says verse 27 to Saul and says, hey, I know you're close on David's heels. But pull off, man. There's another battlefront we have got to get out to. He says, verse 27, hurry, come, the Philistines have invaded the land. We we can get David later. We got to pull off this, and we got to go to another battlefront because the Philistines are invading the land. And Saul, think about it, as bloodthirsty as he was for David, it's hard to imagine. Is it not Saul at this point saying, All right, just pull off of the pursuit of David? We'll just go fight the Philistines. They could. Saul had plenty of other men. You, This shocks me. At this point, Saul, in his deranged condition, would have said, all right, five of you are staying here with me. We almost have this guy dead. We're going to get him. He's right literally on the other side of the mountain. But instead, it says what? That Saul returned from pursuing David. Why? Because God did something miraculous, right? God just intervened and did something in the circumstances He did something in the mind of Saul and the men of Saul in such a way where God shut down something that could have completely destroyed and ruined David. And God is the best bodyguard there is. God is the best at deliverance and protection, so much so that they, as this happened, and they realized this was a supernatural intervention, again, because what did David pray in the beginning of our psalm? Save me, God save me. I can hear him right on the other side of the mountain. God save me. And what did God do? He answered David's prayer. He answered David's prayer. And so much so that David and his men called that place. I love it. The rock of escape. God gave us an escape. And you know what a wonderful thing God is the master of giving us a way of escape. You know what one of the greatest ways of escape God gives to us first uh, Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13. We studied it not too long ago as we've been going through first Corinthians on Sunday mornings. Remember it says no temptation has seized you except such as common to all man. But God is faithful. And with the temptation he will provide a way of what? Escape so that you can bear up under it. Look, we have an enemy who hates us just as much as Saul hated David or worse, who's always hunting us down and trying to destroy us. Jesus told Peter, Satan, I mean, Simon, he said, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. And through the temptation to sin is the way that our enemy is trying to destroy us, putting us into positions and allowing us to get ourselves into positions and turning the fire up and the temptation comes and that would be our destruction. That's what would be our ruin. I don't know, maybe you, if you're on a mountain and somebody's chasing the other side, I'm not saying God can't miraculously intervene that way as well, but more often than not, we're finding ourselves pinned in a situation where temptation is really pressing hard upon us. And in those times, we need to believe that God is a God of deliverance and that he can bring a way of escape to us. And 1 Corinthians 10, 13 gives us that wonderful promise that what we need to do in that time is not think that we can finagle our way out of it, but cry out to God, save me, God. Get me out of this before something very ruinous and destructive happens. Well, if you're not with me yet, come back to Psalm 54. Let's finish up through this Psalm. He says, save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God, he says. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen up against me, and oppressors have sought my life. They have not set God before their eyes. The idea of not set God before their eyes is that is they have no concern of God. They don't even look at a situation taking into consideration God. They, they, they just completely ignore God. That's the idea of not setting God before their eyes. They completely ignore God. And isn't it kind of sad, verse 3, if David is alluding to the men, uh, the Ziphites who turned him in, these men who he had helped out in that area, what he did, he calls them strangers have risen up against me. David said, I thought they were my friends. I thought these were my fellow family members among the Jewish people. And yet they're, they're behaving like strangers now. You know, sometimes those who should be the closest to us, our family, even our spiritual family, sometimes they can when their hearts are not right condition with God, they can treat us like we're a complete stranger. You're thinking, are you kidding me? You're treating me like I'm a stranger. You're just completely treating me completely. He says strangers have risen up against me. I think David was greatly hurt by what they did to him. He says, verse four, behold, God is my helper. I like that. Even when people don't help or people hurt us, who helps us? God does. God is my helper, and the Lord is with those who uphold my life. God is my helper. I I love that because think about that again. Oftentimes, here's a description of God as our helper, and many times we think about being a helper as something inferior, right? If you're the helper at the job site, oh, you're just the helper. You're just the helper. Well, look, there's apparently from God's divine perspective, being a helper is not inferior. Because I would venture to say God's not inferior and I'm not superior. I think it's the other way around. I think God's superior and I'm inferior, but yet the Bible says that God is my helper. That though God has a superior position in his greatness, he's the greatest servant of all. And here, there's a picture of God as a helper. I like that, which means this, that we should never think we're above being somebody's helper. L- let me say to you ladies, to those of you particularly who are married, when the Bible says, you know, to be submissive to your husbands, to be supportive, to be cooperative. Oh, that makes me seem so inferior. I'm not nobody's helper. This Genesis three stuff, God says he's going to make a helper for Adam. I'm nobody's helper, not a helper. I don't want to be a helper. Well, look, God's a helper. God's a helper. Doesn't mean to be inferior. It just means that you realize the value of helping someone. God realized the value of helping David in this situation. God became David's helper. And that was very important. It was very valuable in what he did for David. You know, ultimately, what is the Holy Spirit referred to as by Jesus as the helper? Read John 14 15 and 16. It's interesting. David says here, behold, God is my helper for you and I. That is literally true because God is our helper and he literally indwells us and lives within us as our helper. Jesus even said in John chapter 14, unless I go away, the helper will not come to you, the spirit of truth. So he referred to the Holy Spirit as our helper, the one who dwells within us to help us in relationship with God, to help us worship God, to help us walk with God, to help us overcome sin, to help us understand truth. The Holy Spirit is our internal helper. God, the person of the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit becomes our helper and lives within us. And what a beautiful thing that God functions in such a way in our lives. David says, verse five, and he will notice repay my enemies for their evil to cut them off in your truth. Again, see what David's doing? David says, I'm not going to repay my enemies. David says, he will repay my enemies. Yes, they've treated me like a stranger, though they're my family and my friends who I helped out. But he says, you know what? I'm going to let God deal with that. It's not my business to go dealing with you You know, retribution and vengeance upon people and all that kind of stuff. And again, that's why the Bible says, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And look, the reason why technically we're not called to try and repay or bring vengeance upon someone when they do something wrong to us is the problem is, is unlike God, we don't know how to do it in a very just way. See, God knows just how much is appropriate in his judgment, his punishment, his vengeance. God does it in a way whereby he is governed by justice and patience, and it's a measured judgment. For us, we don't have the ability to evaluate that because our emotions are involved and our, you know, our humanity is involved, and so therefore we just you know, would handle it in a very appropriate way. So the Bible says a much better thing to do is to just say, God, would you just deal with them? God, they deserve to be dealt with. So God, repay them, deal with them, do what's necessary. And then our hands stay off of it. Many times we stay out of trouble that way. We don't get the bad reputation. People don't end up misunderstanding what we're doing, says, Lord, repay my enemies, deal with them for their evil. God, what they did is evil. They deserve to be dealt with, but you repay them for their evil. And he says, here's what I'll do instead. Verse six, here's a better way to occupy your time. I will freely sacrifice to you. That is David, stay and focused, Lord. I can be bitter and angry and resentful, or I can just keep my eyes on the Lord and continue to stay in right relationship with Him. He says, "I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good." And then David says, as a word of celebration, as we just talked about what he's done, been done by, him, by God. He says, "For He has delivered me out of all my trouble, and my eye has seen its desire upon." my enemies boy is that not true in some degree for all of us that god has delivered us out of our trouble i assure you that there have been many a times in your life like in mine as well when you were going through a very troublesome time and you cried out to the lord and maybe it was just a very simplistic prayer lord please help help and is it not too true that so often God came through and worked in ways and got you out of trouble and delivered you in a situation and it could have gone way worse and God intervened like that rock of escape? God intervened whether it was in the last hour, but God intervened and he spared you from a whole lot more trouble. And he made things go in a completely different way by his miraculous, loving intervention. When we call upon the Lord, he answers. And that's why our hearts should be as David's heart here. Lord, he says, I will freely sacrifice to you and praise your name for its good. Let's stand together and let's.